none of us are immune from the fallout of sin in this world we live in. I mean, murder and mayhem, man's inhumanity to man is the order of the day, every day. And it's not just out there. I mean, it's inside of me. It's inside of you. I mean, even the best of us are very, very flawed. And we see some of the effects just generally of sin around us. But it's, we've got it in us. And we don't just make mistakes like forgetting to take out the trash or making a, an error on a math test. I mean, all of us at times do things we're not proud of and might even be ashamed of allowing anybody else to know about that violate our own moral standards, much less God's perfect moral standards. And so, you know, deep down within us, we know that people who do bad things should be punished, and we have done bad things. So we're not just biological machines that need improvement. We're moral transgressors who need to be forgiven because we have sinned against God and against good. Now, the saving grace in the midst of all this bad news is the amazing saving grace of God in the gospel. I mean, the bad news should lead us directly to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But uh, here we are, guilty before God. It's our fault. We are in moral debt to God. We've got no assets to pay that debt. We need to be freed from the slave market of sin. But slaves can't free themselves. We need to be delivered by someone who is not in moral debt to God. And this person must have the means, motive, and opportunity to do the work needed to wipe out our condemnation without compromising God's righteous character. Which reminds me of a verse. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. That's Romans 5.20. Even though God owes none of us any favors, he took the initiative in the person of Jesus to perform not just a rescue mission, but the rescue mission. I'm reminded of uh, 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin, Jesus, was made to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world so much he gave his only begotten Son, the active agent of the plan of salvation, Holy Spirit being the activating agent, that whosoever, and you actually don't have whosoever, Jeff, you've got the uh, articular present active participle there, which means everyone who believes in him. Not whosoever, but it says that all the ones who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And of course, in this resurrection day, I'm going to tell you Jesus Christ of Nazareth is that person who died for our sins as the God-man Savior, who rose again from the dead, and who's the only person that really qualifies for the awesome title Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is the person of the Savior. His mission focuses on the cross, but it really is validated by his resurrection because, as I like to say, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can. And so this morning, and I've done 29 Easter messages here, but I don't think I've ever surveyed Luke 24. Uh, All the gospel passages are fine. 
Um, and if you're interested, I, the MacArthur Study Bible has a nice note that summarizes and kind of harmonizes the four Gospels. They're easily harmonized. Um, there's a Los Angeles detective that there was an atheist who became a Christian recently uh, in the last five years or ten years, J. Warner Wallace, who when he read the Gospels realized they read exactly like four different witnesses to some kind of a major event, a crime or a car accident or something. They give you partial accounts, but they are readily harmonized. But today we're going to look at Luke 24. We're going to focus on the empty tomb. And we're going to say what you already know, Dustin, that Easter is not really about bunnies, baskets, or bonnets. Easter is about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's look at four facts from a first century medical doctor. Luke was a medical doctor. We've got medical students here. And uh, I look forward to referring to you as doctors. In a couple of couple of years, when this young couple graduate from med school and they walk down the street, people will say, "There goes a paradox." <laughs> right? Yeah, because there'll be a pair of doctors, you know. But uh, four facts, and here are the facts: the empty tomb, the risen Christ outside of Jerusalem, interacting with folks, the risen Christ inside Jerusalem, interacting with eleven guys who will all die for this themselves. And then the risen Christ on the Mount of Olives. Let's look first at first fact. Fact number one, the risen Christ had departed. And so his tomb was empty so that witnesses could get in and validate that. When faithful women arrived early that morning, the first Easter morning, to complete his burial. Now I put Sunday, April 3rd, 33 AD, not because uh, I'm certain of that, although uh, I'm going to take it on faith. You know, faith is only as good as his object. And one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, who did his Ph.D. work at Cambridge University, wrote his uh, Ph.D. dissertation uh, on the topic uh, dating the New Testament. And after uh, hours of research, as you would say in a speech, right, uh, historical, uh, scientific, uh, and other data, uh, scriptural, of course, he came up with the date of April 3rd, 33 A.D., which is my mother's birthday, which is interesting since she is now with Jesus as of two weeks ago. But let's look at verses 1 through 8. We have women arriving at the tomb to complete the burial. They could not complete the burial because Friday, just before sundown, as they bury Jesus, the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, kicks in at sundown. So they were able to bury him but not complete the the uh, preparations as they normally would do, do. So we read on the first day of the week, Friday is the crucifixion, Saturday is the Sabbath, first day of the week is Sunday. That early dawn, they came to the tomb. We're going to talk about who they are here in a minute. Bringing the spices which they had prepared to complete the uh, burial of the body. And they expected to find the body, right? That's why they're there. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Matthew will tell you how that happened, but that's not to let Jesus out, but to let witnesses in. But when they entered, they did not find the body. We're talking about the body. We're talking about a literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. We're not talking about a spiritual resurrection where somebody might have thought they'd seen the spirit of Jesus or felt the the birds sing or the wind blowing the trees and they thought Jesus was in there somewhere. We're talking about the physical body being supernaturally resurrected. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Now, the Bible often uses something called phenomenological language where you describe things the way they look. So when the Bible talks about sunrise and sundown, it's not talking astronomy. It's just talking about the way it looks. Here, these two men are clearly angels, 
And Luke gives you enough uh, credit to assume you'll figure that out on your own. But they looked like young men in white. They're heavenly messengers. And the women were terrified and bowed their face, faces to the ground. And the men, they looked like young men, said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you looking for a living, resurrected person in a graveyard? He is not here anymore. He was here, but he's been resurrected. But he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you about this when you were still in Galilee. Don't go there now, but jot down Luke 9.22. Luke 18.31 and 33 are two examples of Jesus telling his followers he was going to be arrested by the bad guys, uh, but he would be resurrected three days later. Uh, remember, while he was still in Galilee, he was saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And then they remembered what he said, and then they started connecting the dots. Now, it's amazing that in the last generation, even the most radical New Testament scholars will tell you, we're pretty sure the disciples really, really thought Jesus must have been resurrected from the dead, because if they were just making this stuff up 20 or 30 or 50 years after the fact and writing it down, there ain't no way a lot of the stuff they said that happened in the aftermath would have happened. We would have, they would have cleaned it up to make everybody look like they were just expecting this and anticipating it. And because under Roman law, women were not considered to be responsible, uh, to give testimony in the legal court of law. If you're making this up, you're not going to make the women the first piece, people to get Evidence about the resurrection. If you're making it up anyway, David, just get somebody who'd be more impressive to people reading about it 20 years or 50 years after the fact. But the cool thing is Luke, like none of the other four gospels, really emphasizes the, uh, the respect that Jesus had and the participation by women Jesus had in his ministry before, during, and after the crucifixion. So that's not unusual for Luke to emphasize that. But I think you see these women having the first evidence of the resurrection because they're so devoted to him, even though it may even still be dangerous in their mind to be identified with him, because after all, they crucified him. They may crucify anybody who wants to serve or worship him or show him respect. They're the first ones there because they're, frankly, more faithful than the apostles at this point. And again, the apostles would not be making this up 50 years after the fact, if they're trying to build a church around apostolic authority, unless it happened. And this this account has the ring of truth like that uh, throughout uh, their content. Look at verse 9. Emphasize Peter uh, comes late to the party, but he shows up, right? They remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11. Why do we only have 11 now? I thought we had 12. Judas, Lou the Coop, was never really a believer at all. And to the rest, and there were, and he's giving you partial accounts here, but a list, Mary Magdalene, who, you know, most Baptist churches wouldn't allow her to teach Sunday school, just so you'll know. And Joanna and Mary and the mother of James and the other women who were with them were telling these things to the apostle. The tomb's empty, and we saw two guys we think are angels saying that Jesus had told us he was going to be resurrected, and he's been resurrected. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. Now, if you're trying to build this thing out of, out of thin air 20 or 50 years later in the Gospels and the apostles are running the church, you're not going to have them look that stupid. You're going to, if you're going to lie, just go ahead and lie and say the apostles knew it all along. This has the ring of truth. It's just the way we're wired. You know, we, we tend to doubt. We tend to pout. 
We tend to drop out, right? But these words appeared to the apostles as nonsense. They've never seen a resurrection. They've seen Jesus resuscitate people. But this is a resurrection of somebody who's been biologically dead. And they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And the Greek text doesn't really say marveling. It says wondering or pondering. He's rethinking all of his conclusions since the evening he had denied Jesus three times and saying maybe this really did happen. Okay, The empty tomb is one fact that confirms the resurrection of Jesus. Fact 2, verses 13 through 35, the risen Christ appears to a duel, or we could say a dyad, of disciples outside of Jerusalem. Look at verses 13 through 16. And behold, two of them, not the apostles, but we've got the ladies and the apostles, and they're all believers, two other believers in Jesus who are very perplexed because they're expecting him to overthrow the Roman government first before anything else happens. But instead they crucified him, the Romans did. Behold, two of them, two believers, uh, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, and Emmaus means warm or hot springs. So if I'm ta- talking about hot springs, you're thinking of Arkansas, right? Sue, but Emmaus was the original hot springs, right? Um, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking, these two disciples, these two lowercase disciples, as opposed to the apostles, let's say, with each other about all these things that have taken place. They've, they've heard about some of the rumblings, but they know for sure Christ has been crucified. Well, they were talking and discussing Jesus himself. The resurrected Christ appeared and began traveling with them. So walking must be good for you because Jesus did it, right? Okay. You got to get 10,000 steps a day out there, kids. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Let's go to that side of the world, shall we? We're going to, whether you want to or not, because we've got slides. Uh, this is the other side of the world. Uh, let's call that the Middle East. Israel's that little teeny weeny sliver right there. Uh, let's show you the Middle East. This is kind of a schematic map. There's Israel right there. It's just a little, little strip of land. This blows people's minds, but that's the United States of America, the 48 contiguous states. That's what Israel looks like. See how tiny it is? It's teensy-weensy, but good things happen in small packages, right? There's biblical Israel, and most of Jesus' ministry is based out of northern Israel, Galilee, but now we're in the southern part of Israel called Judea with cities like Jerusalem and Emmaus. And Emmaus, according to church tradition, is west and a little bit north of Jerusalem. So if that's Jerusalem, Emmaus is roughly there. Okay, so these are real places, real people, real events. And let me do a little commercial. If you haven't been to Israel, I'm going to say why not. If you've been once, you need to go back. Lord willing... Uh, second half of May next year, 2019, we will be going to Israel and looking at all the major biblical sites. That's a picture from a tour in 2006 in the northern part of Israel, Capernaum, where Jesus uh, made his base of operations for most of his ministry. And you'll probably see some familiar faces there, right? Okay, keep going. Look at verse 17. And Jesus, who's walking with them, the resurrected Jesus, but they're not allowed to recognize who it is. It's just like another guy walking with them. says, 
What are these words that you were engaged, exchanging with one another as you were walking? They stood still, looking sad. Okay. When you walk up to two guys and they look sad, it's a bad, bad situation. You're probably a pastor because I've had that happen to me many times. Uh, one of them named Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? It's called a leading question, right? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, much more than a prophet, but he was a prophet, um, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests, the Jewish authorities, and our rulers delivered them him over to the Romans. So it wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus, ultimately the Romans at Jewish leadership initiation, uh, to the sentence of death, crucifying him. But we've been hoping it was he who's going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all these things, it's the third day since these happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb this morning. They didn't find his body, and they came saying they had seen a vision of angels. See, those two men were angels. And that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it exactly as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Okay, there's the Bible. It's a big book. It's got 66 little books in it, but it only has two parts. you got the Old Testament, the books written before the first coming of Christ. you got the New Testament books written right after the first coming of Christ. The Old Testament overall has one major premise and one major promise. The major premise of the Old Testament is everybody sins and everybody dies. Okay, I know about Elijah and Enoch, but other than that, 99.9999%, they all sin, they all die, right? The promise is of the Old Testament, God's going to send a Savior, and he's going to come as a lamb and then as a lion. That's what the Old Testament says. They're living right there, and they haven't connected the dots yet. The New Testament, the books written after the first coming of Christ, the resurrection, say that Jesus is the Savior who was promised, and he's coming back. Okay. Now, the main narrative of the Bible starts in chapter 12, where Abraham in about 2000 B.C. in Iraq is told his descendants will be uh, greatly blessed, the Savior of the world will come through them, and they're going to be given a land track we call Israel, right? And so for 2,000 years, humanity, as it were, was waiting for the first coming. Now, it's ironic that we're about 2,000 years after the first coming, and we're waiting for the second coming. So don't, don't, be just, don't despair. God uh, doesn't always work on our schedule, but he's always exactly on time. Now, if you look at the Old Testament data, the books written before the first coming of Christ, and arrange the prophecies about the Messiah in those books, you get a very detailed picture of who they're supposed to be looking for as far as genealogy is concerned, where he's going to be born, the uh, time frame in which he's going to arrive, and what and why he's going to do what he does. He's going to be killed, later establish the kingdom, crucified as a substitutionary atonement, and resurrected. So they should have known... And if somebody could hold them by the hand and walk them through the Old Testament, you could connect the dots for them, which is exactly what Jesus is about to do. When they really need help, you know what Jesus does? He does Bible exposition. He does Bible exposition. Nobody wants to listen to somebody talk about the Bible for 45 minutes at a time. Well, I would have loved to have a, t- a tape recording of what Jesus is going to do for these guys here. But when you look at the Old Testament, you've got 
One Messiah who's going to have two advents or two main functions. He's going to come as a lamb, a sacrificial uh, function, and then as a ruling uh, function as the lion. So you see all this data here. Now we're told that Jesus was crucified in a place called the skull, and uh, there is an outcropping that uh, traditionally is known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. And here's Murray. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you know this, Murray, but uh, that's uh, across from Gordon's Calvary in Israel, Jerusalem. And the Muslims who get really unhappy if you build anything within five miles of any of their stuff, put a graveyard on top of Golgotha, a bus station in front of it, and a mosque next to it. But Jews and Christians don't throw bombs at them or kill them or anything. We just kind of have this one little section where you can take an angle shot because they've kind of tried to make it as hard as possible for you to see things like that. But, you know, the death of Christ doesn't mean what it really means apart from the resurrection. And so you go to the garden tomb and it's still empty. And there are some of the folks from our tour group there. This is one of my personal favorite pictures of that whole trip. This is me taking a picture of Jonathan, taking a picture of Jamie and Kristen as Julie Miller goes into the tomb. That was like one little magic moment in history. You could never have that happen again. And there's my favorite picture I've ever took in my life. I thought that one really came out nicely. I love that picture, right? Boom. Okay, keep reading. Verse 24, so some of them uh, who were with us went to the tomb uh, found exactly like the woman said, but they didn't see the body of Jesus. He's gone. And he said to them, Jesus says, O foolish men, fools are those who've refused to let Scripture influence their thinking and behavior. And these guys are have totally screened out the lamb prophecies, Jan, because they're all about the lion prophecies. And when you you know take big truths and only look at half of it and ignore or explain away the other half, you're not going to end up in a good place. And this is what they were doing at the time. And Jesus says, hey, you guys have blown it. You know, you've got plenty of information. Let me explain it to you. Was it not necessary for the plan of God and the prophetic word of God for the Christ to suffer these things like the Passover lamb, Isaiah 53, and enter into his kingdom? Isaiah 53, real quick, in the Old Testament. I bet I'll beat you there. Isaiah 53, written in 700 B.C., says this. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our spiritual well-being would fall on him. By his scourging, we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, God the Father, has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. Okay, That's uh, right in the middle of the Old Testament. It reads like Romans. Go back to Luke 24. Notice, from the, verse 27 says, then beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, including Isaiah, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Chris, he's doing Bible exposition, probably in Aramaic, so we need translation, right? But I would have loved to have been there. Now watch this. And as they approached the village they were where they're going, Emmaus, so he's been talking for a long time. You think I talked for a long time? He's been talking for seven miles, you know? That's a long time. Uh, and acted as he was going further. They urged him, saying, stay with us. You know, we want what you say. We want to talk to you for some more. For it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Uh, when he had reclined at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. 
and breaking it, began giving it to them. That sounds almost like the Lord's Supper, but when you analyze it, it actually sounds more like the feeding of the 5,000, which these guys would have heard about or maybe had been present for. Then the eyes of these two guys were open. They recognized who Jesus was, but he immediately vanishes. The resurrection body allows you to appear and disappear at will, move through doors, but you're still tangible when you appear. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us back in verse 27 when he's walking through Isaiah 53 and saying, that's all about me. While he's speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us. So they got up that very hour and they ran to Jerusalem, I bet, as long as, as far as I could run, run and run, walk kind of thing. And found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. This is the night of the resurrection saying, the Lord has really risen. And appeared to Simon. It's these guys show up and say, hey, he really has risen. And then the two guys began to relate their experiences too. And say, yeah, we just walked with him and he just walked us through Isaiah 53 and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. Boom. Man, I love that passage. Isn't that awesome? Let's go to fact three. We've seen the risen Christ has an empty tomb. The risen Christ talks to a duo on the road. Now the risen Christ will interact with the eleven inside of Jerusalem. Verse 36, while they were telling these things, he, Jesus, just appears. And the room's all locked up because they still think they're all going to get arrested according to John 20, 17. He himself stood in their midst and said, peace be to you. Chill out, guys. Okay, I got this under control. I got this. No problems. And they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And again, if Ashley, if you're making this up 50 years later, you're not going to put that. You're going to say, they, of course, they were expecting it, right, Steve? They weren't expecting it. They were psychologically in flux, you know. And that just has a ring of truth to it. That's kind of the way we are when we get hit with a crisis. Uh, thought they were seeing a ghost. But he said to them, why are you troubled? You know, don't panic. He said, believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house and many mansions. That's what I said right before I left. And now he says the same thing. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. What's the only man-made thing in heaven right now? The wounds in the resurrection body of Christ, which are left there as an eternal remembrance of the work of redemption, right? For a spirit does not have flesh and bones. does not have a physical, tangible body, albeit a supernatural body as I have, right? And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they could still not believe it because of joy, that is the way we're wired, man. It's just too good to be true. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Does that mean, listen, here's a cool thing. As a theologian, Trey, I'm pretty sure in your resurrection body, you can eat whatever you want and not get fat. Is that going to be great or what? I mean... uh Sharon made us these cookies that she brought over the uh, yesterday, you know, and I think they're all gone. Could you make some more? Uh, <laughs> but uh, you, you could eat all those you want and not get fat. I, I don't think you have to eat in the resurrection body. I think you eat just for the enjoyment of it, and it uh, won't want to affect your blood sugar or anything like that. And he's doing this just to give them absolute confirmation that I'm really here, this is really me, and you saw me crucified and brutalized, and God really does... Uh, deliver life after death. I'm proof of that, and my atonement is sufficient to give you eternal life after death. Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of fish. Hey, we ate fish last night at Bob's, so I guess we're very Christ-like. So that's good. Uh, they took, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Okay? Now, that's confirmation of his resurrection, Dustin. Now we're going to get commission. And he kind of gives this basic 
content several times in the 40-day period before his between his resurrection and his ascension. Uh, we're more uh, familiar with the Matthew 28 account, but that's a different occasion, I think. Uh, but he says this same kind of content several times during that period. And he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that I was going to be crucified and risen, um, that all the things which are written about me in the Old Testament, and Murray knows that's called the Tanakh, right? So the Jews call their, what we call Old Testament, and the law, Moses, prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Probably covered a lot of the same ground peg that he had on the road to Emmaus going through the Old Testament prophecies about him as a lamb first and a lion second. And then he said to them, uh, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, uh, would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, to all the nations. I always say the surprise ending to the Gospel of Matthew, Wendy, with the most Jewish gospel, is the fact that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is the Savior of the world. And that wasn't really a surprise, because Abraham was told that through his loins would come the Messiah, and he'd bless the whole world. But Jesus is emphasizing, we're not doing spirituality with training wheels anymore, Old Testament. We're now in a whole new economy. Okay, We're not looking forward to a promised lamb we're looking back at a provided lamb angel and looking forward to the second coming. And we're living in this inner advent period, this church age. So it's all about the world. God's all over the world. And then he says, you are witnesses to these things. So we're looking at a medical doctor under inspiration, recording some of the facts that support the, the reality of the resurrection of Christ. We saw the empty tomb itself, uh, the risen Christ outside of Jerusalem, walking for seven miles south, you know, I know I know walking seven miles for you is nothing, you know, like running 70 miles for you would be something, but uh, it's, you know, it's easy for him, right? It gets harder when you get old, right, David? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we saw that outside of the city. Now we just saw the risen Christ inside of the city uh, with some of the more skeptical observers, the apostles themselves. They couldn't believe it for joy. And now we're going to see uh, 40 days after the resurrection, the risen Christ on the Mount of Olives. Look at verse you know what, did I get all, I didn't get all the way down. I went verse 49. I'm not quite to where I wanted to be. Uh, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. That happens in Acts 2. And it's very interesting. Watch this. Luke, the medical doctor, wrote two New Testament books. He wrote a book called Luke, and he wrote a second book called the book of Acts. And the book of Luke is like an inward spiral where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem so he can be the sacrificial lamb of God in that place according to Jewish scripture, who in fact is the savior of the world. That's the gospel of Luke, okay? This inward spiral that ends up in Jerusalem. Book of Acts starts right there, death of Christ, resurrection, ascension, right where Luke ends with those events. And Acts starts in Jerusalem, is in an outward spiral, and we end up with the message of the gospel ending up in the center of the capital of the world at that time, which is Rome. So Luke, the gospel of Luke is like an inward spiral going to Jerusalem, so we get the works of Christ for salvation. Then the message of Christ as Savior goes all the way out to Rome in the book of Luke. And so you actually have overlapping ending of Luke and beginning of Acts. And look at how this works. Let's look at, see, the last three verses 
of uh, one, two, three, four, last four verses of the book of Luke real quick. Look at this, and we'll see how it interacts with the beginning of Acts. And he led them, this is 40 days later, we know that because of the Acts parallel passage. And ultimately, 40 days after the resurrection, Christ leads the apostles out to Bethany across the Kidron Valley, due east of Jerusalem, uh, to the little village on the Mount of Olives called Bethany, and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them. He just ascends straight up in the air and is carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, what do we know about worshiping? What, what happens to John in, in Revelation 19 when he worships the revealing angel? And then in 22 when he worships the revealing angel again, Anthony, remember what happens? The angel says, don't do that. You're going to get us both in trouble. You only worship God around here, okay? So when you've got the apostles worshiping Jesus, what are they saying? He's the God-man Savior. That's a very strong affirmation of his deity. Nobody seems to mention um, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, knowing Jesus isn't this grim resignation, I've got to give up all the fun stuff. It gives your life joy, right? And they were continually in the temple praising God. Hold your place there. Go to Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts, Acts chapter 1. No mistake here, Luke is a good medical doctor who also likes to do writing in his spare time. He's you know, two books of the Bible. But as James will tell you, if you count the words in the Greek text, Luke writes more biblical content than any other New Testament writer. He only writes two books, but as far as the total number, Krista, of content, there's a lot of content there. Okay? Now, Paul writes 13 books, but some of his books are just like half a page of papyrus, papyrus long, like Philemon, right? So a lot of people don't know that. So when you see Luke... In heaven, like the second time, not the first time. But just say, hey, man, I heard you read, wrote more New Testament content than anybody else in the New Testament. Is that right? That, yeah, I don't like to brag, but yeah, I did. Now watch this. Acts 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, the Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. What we just read in Luke. Led them to Bethany, uh, Mount of Olives, blessed them, and he was carried up. Into heaven, okay? That's where Luke ends. First account, Gospel of Luke, was all about what Jesus did until he was taken up to heaven, after he, by the Holy Spirit, had given orders to the apostles. To these, he presented himself alive after his suffering, after his death, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. How do we know there was a 40-day interval between the resurrection and the ascension? Where would we go to find that, Steve? Maybe Acts 1? Because he just said... Through these he presented himself alive uh, after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of how long? Forty days. That's how we know it's forty days. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, same thing he said in the book of Luke, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard of me. For John the Baptist, who wasn't a Baptist, he was a Jewish prophet, uh, baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when he had come, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, "Are you going to build the kingdom now? Are you going to take over from the Romans now? Are you going to be the lion now, Lord? Now you've done the lamb stuff that we kind of weren't prioritizing. Are you going to really do the lion stuff now?" And Jesus says, "Going to do it, but I'm not going to tell you when. You're going to have to kind of wait me on for me on that. But what you want to do is, after you're receiving the Holy Spirit's power as New Testament believers, be my witnesses. Get the word out, both in the city of Jerusalem." 
Judea, Samaria, and even all the way to Rome. And after he said these things, he was lifted up. It's a supernatural ascension of Christ. And while they were looking on a cloud of glory, this wasn't a thunder cloud, this was a cloud of glory, uh, received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky with their mouths open, it doesn't say the mouth open part, but it's what would have happened. Uh, two men in white. Two men in white. What's the deal there? Probably the same two angels, but two angels that looked like young men in white said, Men of Galilee, why you stand looking in the sky, this same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go. And in fact, you know what? According to Zechariah 14.4, when the Messiah comes in glory to take over the world, he's going to go to the Mount of Olives. He descended from the Mount of Olives. He's going to return to the Mount of Olives. Pretty good stuff. Okay, go back to Luke 24. Yeah, the risen Christ returns to heaven from the place to which he'll return at his second advent. So we looked at four facts from a first century medical doctor that affirm and confirm the resurrection of Christ. Uh, The empty tomb, him walking outside of Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus to a duo of disciples, his appearance within the walls of Jerusalem, within the upper room with the apostles, and then his ascension before the apostles and others. So let's close this way and think briefly about the central effect of the real, real meaning of Easter. And the real meaning of Easter is not bonnets or bunnies or baskets, even though I think we can have a Jesus-centered egg hunt. And I think most of us are so spiritual, it won't hurt us a bit. Okay? I'm pretty sure we'll survive that. Uh, but uh, that's what the Easter is all about. It's not about all this uh, commercialization and, and pastel colors and, and little baskets. It's about the resurrection of the glorified Savior. And at the end of the crucifixion, Jesus says, it is finished. In most English translations, that's one Greek word, tetelestai, means paid in full. And Sydney, they would put that on bills of sale after you bought somebody's donkey. If you went to Emmaus to buy a donkey and you were from Jerusalem and walking out of town with that donkey, somebody's going to see you with Publius's donkey and say, hey, angel just stole his donkey. And Angel's going to say, no, I didn't. She's going to have a sheet of paper with tetelestai on it, saying, I paid in full for that donkey. And they're going to go, okay. So it is finished could be a whimper of resignation, admission of defeat. It could mean a lot of things. But the Greek word in the New Testament text, John 19.30, means paid in full, mission accomplished kind of thing. So Christians have the audacity to believe that the risen Savior is the only one who can give eternal life because... He was the only one who was resurrected after having made a payment for your sin debt that you could never make for yourself, but which is sufficient to forgive your sins and make you right before God. All the world religions have different ways to achieve heaven or nirvana or whatever they're wanting to give you or relief from suffering in this world, which is what Buddhism is offering you. And they give you different glide paths based on things you have to do for God. You have to do, 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 do the right things. Uh, Christianity says God has done for us what we could never do for himself. Rather than raising uh, ourselves up to God on a heavenly ladder, God comes down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And because he died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And that's, that's the center, Franny, that's the center message of Christianity. Because Christ died for your sins, you don't have to die in your sins. But if he wasn't resurrected from the dead... How in the world could we trust him for eternal life if he's if he's still moldering away in a graveyard somewhere? The resurrection of Christ 
doesn't just prove the reality of life after death. It proves the vitality and the validity and the power of Jesus' death to save those who trust in him. The Bible says all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, the wages of sin is separation from God in a place of punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, because Christ died for us, we don't have to die in our sins. And when we trust him, he gives us the gift of eternal life. But he doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He gives you a whole new capacity as an effect of regeneration to serve and glorify him. But all the good stuff Christians do, Natalie, is the effect of salvation. It's the fruit. It's not the root. And we don't want to mix the root and the fruit at all because then people miss the whole boat. But Christ triumphantly says, work over, mission accomplished, salvation of the Lord. I've done everything necessary to get you from Oklahoma to heaven. And then he validates the saving power of his work by his literal bodily supernatural resurrection. And I'll close with this. A dead savior, whether it's Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or whomever, can't get anyone from earth to heaven. The risen savior, Jesus Christ, is the only one who can. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to major on the majors this uh, Easter morning. Even as we're looking forward to the egg hunt for the little kids, we're going to enjoy seeing them scurrying around having some fun. But uh, we're focusing on the risen, risen Christ today. And for those of us who are believers, you tell us it's just reasonable for uh, a Brad McCoy or Steve Skinner or Carla Buchanan uh, or Kylene Driggs as believers in the crucified risen Savior to give our lives back as living sacrifices. as just a, a logical response to the one who has saved us. And quite often we... Uh, redefine that or we compromise on that or we cut ourselves a lot of slack while we're very critical of other people's Christian lives and deficiencies. Forgive us for that. Help us to renew ourselves, Lord Jesus, to loving and serving you and bowing to your Lordship in every area of our life on this Easter morning. For anyone who uh, is here this morning, Father, who's not trusted Christ alone, please strip off any pretense that this isn't real, that this is a fairy tale. Uh, please strip off any pretense that they can be good enough, better than enough other people. They can kind of impress you enough to earn their own salvation. Help them to realize they have broken their own standards, much less yours, and they can't do anything to save themselves or to cover that debt. But you demonstrated your love for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's not what we do for you, it's what you've done for us that saves us as we trust in you in that. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Uh, so many people think they're good enough, they can earn it. Other people I think they're so bad they can't have it. And I pray that you'd help people to see that the ground is perfectly flat around the cross, no matter how much money you've got or what you're driving or how many good things you've done or how much you've done in churches or religious activities or how horrible your life has been either. Because uh, the death of Christ for the world, the death of Christ is fully sufficient for all who will come to him in faith. So open hearts to see and believe and make this a transforming uh, time of Easter celebration in all of our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray.